Hi everyone, Duncan Fletcher here. Welcome back to the PADS Athlete Development Podcast Series. We're very pleased today to have Dr. Marinda Harrell-Levy, who earned her PhD in Human Development and Family Studies at Auburn University, and is currently a professor at Pennsylvania State University, Brandywine. Dr. Harrell-Levy has specialized in issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and has recently explored the value of a trauma-informed approach to social justice and advocacy across a range of different environments. We were super fortunate to have Dr. Harrell Levy participate in our conversation here today. We hope you enjoy what we talked about. Let's dive in. Hello, friends. The PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series is extraordinarily fortunate to have Aura Health as a sponsor this year. Founded in 2013, Aura Health is the company behind the health tech wearable, the Aura Ring, which provides actionable insights on sleep and its impact on your overall health. It's used by top performers across a variety of industries, including the NBA, the WNBA, NASCAR, UFC, and more. And in fact, I've got one on my finger, which I had before Aura even thought about sponsoring pads. I can tell you one thing for sure. It's definitely helped me align my sleep, which was an absolute car wreck. The Aura Ring delivers personalized readiness and activity and sleep insights automatically to the Aura app, providing wearers with practical steps for long-term improvement. I can attest to that. The Aura Ring is not a medical device and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, monitor, or prevent medical conditions or illnesses. For more information, I'd urge you to check out AuraRing.com. And on behalf of PADS, we thank you for your sponsorship of the PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series. Hi, everyone. This is Duncan Fletcher. I'm the Executive Director of PADS, and we're here with another session of our Athlete Development 2021 Summit podcast series. I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn, and we're very fortunate today to have Dr. Marinda Harrell-Levy from Penn State University. Thank you very much for joining us today for a conversation. Duncan and Steph, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's jump right into it. Uh, usually before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of the topic we're looking to hit today, what we really want to do is get to learn a little bit more about you and your background. So maybe if you don't mind, give us a little bit of history on how you came to be a professor at Penn State and talk a little bit about what brought you into the research that you're currently conducting today. Yeah, that's actually a, a great question. And it's one that I'm always pleased to answer because it allows me to tip my head a little bit to the young people that I encountered across my many walks of life prior to becoming a professor. So one thing I'll say is I started off as a teacher of high school students in the Washington, D.C. area. It was at a secondary school. And it was a very unique space because they had a curriculum on social justice education. And I was there to kind of teach them kind of very basic lessons on what it would be like um, to construct an identity around issues that are happening in their homes and in their local communities. And what I found in the course of doing this work with them is that, especially in the inner city, but across the country, really, there are so many young people that are significantly impacted by not only by the kind of social justice issues, but also the inability or unwillingness of the adults around them to address them, right, on an everyday basis. And I felt kind of what I think a lot of early teachers in their career feel, a lot of frustration with the fact that there were so many systemic problems and teachers are often being asked to be the gatekeepers, right, of, 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 of all types of access issues, all types of, uh, you know, resource issues. So what ended up happening is if after a couple of years of teaching, whether it be at that school or I also taught a little bit in Alabama and Mississippi when my husband and I relocated there, I realized that the issues that were 
that, that teachers are confronting in those schools are bigger than just kind of professional development. They're bigger than just what type of curriculum we're going to put into a class. They're, they're, they're bigger. They're systemic in nature. And so I took those stories, those really heartwarming, meaningful encounters that I had with students who exposed themselves in ways, you know, in, ter in terms of emotionally, that I didn't expect. And I poured that into graduate studies at Auburn University, where I, where I deeply explored not just my, you know, obviously I knew of my own experience teaching social justice, but I began to look at social justice educators from across the country. I began to look at other ways of impacting youth, especially in educational settings, and trying to figure out what the best pathways are for helping our youth. You know, I told you my story began in Washington, D.C., but when it continued into Alabama and into Mississippi in terms of teaching there, and, and there I had a lot more kind of experiences because I, I, as I was a substitute kind of moving around different schools, I was able to see that this wasn't a problem that was limited to the inner city, right? Across the country, youth are struggling in many ways. And I know through my experiences and my training that, you know, the majority of our country, the majority of our citizenry will go through some form of a traumatic event in, at some point in their life. And oftentimes it happens before the age of 18, right? So we know about 70%. And so before the age of 18, which means young people are having a hard time. When you add in other issues, like the issues of social injustice related to poverty or racism or heterosexism or classism, all of a sudden you find that youth from marginalized communities are really, they're really kind of experiencing uh, problems and in a way that have not adequately been addressed. So that took me through my graduate school studies and I began to commit to this path a little bit more, not only learning about it and researching it, but trying to understand how to turn the research we already have into meaningful programs. So what I do a lot these days is I go in and I try to do those professional development programs that I was once listening to as a young teacher. And I try to do them a little bit differently um, with, a, with a different sense of the larger systemic problems, the institutionalized trauma that often comes from social injustice that really is often left out of the conversation when we're thinking about how to reach our youth. And so that's kind of what brought me to this area, like the nexus of trauma research with, with the youth identity. Uh, and I'm always interested in how teachers and guidance counselors and social workers and mentors and parents and coaches and uh, just adult figures in the lives of young people, how they can be proactive in being agents of identity formation, how they can be proactive in kind of helping our young people develop a socio-political consciousness that won't just help them be good citizens, but also help them be healthy people that feel like they are valued and a part of a community. And that brings me to talking to you today. That's phenomenal. Uh, perfect background. And I think one of the big questions for anybody that's actually looked at your work, maybe one of the things I could have you talk to and maybe describe a little bit is, is what is trauma-informed social justice and how, yeah, maybe just walk us through what that is. It's probably the easiest way to start. Yeah, so... There are, there are different lenses we use to view the world, right? Um, we all have different approaches to seeing problems, to seeing what's happening around us. So I think to answer your question, you know, you have one lens, which is a social justice lens, and you have another that's trauma-informed and how to bring them together. When I think of social justice, and I realize it's often a, a politicized term, a football that we throw around, depending on what your, you know, your affiliation is in life, I don't think of it as belonging 
to a certain subgroup of people or even a subgroup of, 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 of partisan politics. I actually think of it as more a sense of how is the world operating around us? And is, in, in, in my experience, is the world operating in a way that is fundamentally fair, that line, aligns with my values, right? Is the world, um, as I see it and as I experience it, something that makes me proud, right? Now, I realize we could, we could drill down into that term and talk about the nuts and bolts of what social justice often looks like, and maybe we'll do that later in this podcast. But that gives us a starting point for social justice for me. And it's often the one I use when I'm talking to youth, especially. All right, let's get all the politics out of it. And let's just think about what is fair, what is right, what is just. And let's kind of unpack these terms. When I was uh, thinking about some of the recent uh, murders, when I was a, a young teacher and even after that, a lot of my students, whether it be Freddie Gray or Tamir Rice or George Floyd or, you know, when, when I was working with my young people, whether they were currently my students at Penn State or somewhere else or whether they were coming back and reaching back out to me after some years, I learned very quickly that most people were wrestling with this fundamental sense of what is justice, right? If you think about a Trayvon Martin situation, how do we determine what justice looks like in this situation? And more than the issues themselves, what I picked up on is the fact that we didn't have any literacy around social justice. We didn't have any literacy around justice. So many young people were struggling because they had never been given a framework, right? They had never even been engaged in the conversations to figure out what does justice look like to me, right? And then how do I apply that to this situation? I think that's what happens in a situation where, for instance, we are so narrowly focused on passing our students through schools, through tests, right? Like passing tests and less interested in their critical education, right? Less interested in kind of transformative outcomes, right? Instead of memorizing, uh, you know, categories of learning, right? And, and, and being able to pass a test, which can be important depending on what your, your goals are, we have, we have decided that, I'm deciding actually, that we could actually do both. We could do the test passing, but we could also do the whole how do we even engage with the issues of the day so that we actually have a way of thinking about it, a framework, uh, a place to start? So when I think about social justice, I think about how do you see your world, right? Do you see your world? Do you take time to see how other people in the same spaces you occupy operate? Even if it's something as, as simple as looking at how do students who identify as disabled in your community, do they still have the same access to resources that you have? And in order to make it fair, what would we need to do, right? And that's how I began thinking of social justice. When I think of a trauma lens, I'm really thinking about the experiences that people have had over time that have injured them in some way, right? Um, and usually that injury, uh, depending on who's defining it, whether you're looking, you know, there are certain subfields that will define it a little bit differently than others. I come from a field of developmental psychologists. There are clinical psychologists that might look at it slightly differently. But when that experience causes you to struggle in any way that kind of extends over time, that has continuity to it, we think of that as, as trauma, right? And so when we want to have a trauma-informed approach to working with people, what we're really actually saying is we want people to not just look through the lens of how do we uh, fulfill a standard that we have set, but also how do we meet the best needs of this individual in front of me while trying to fulfill those standards. When I put trauma-informed lens on, it's like saying taking glasses off and putting them back on and saying, do I see the whole person in front of me or am I just seeing a stereotype? Do I 
do I have a nuanced picture and am I willing to engage with that nuanced picture or am I really just going to rely on one or two aspects of a person and then make and then draw some conclusions and be done. And when you combine those two, when you combine the social justice lens that I described right there and the trauma informed lens, you know, oftentimes in my professional development workshops, when I'm working with young teachers, they can begin to understand the students behaviors in different ways. Right. They can begin to say, hey, listen, if I adjust my approach so that instead of responding with aggression to someone who is kind of unregulated themselves, who's being aggressive with me, all of a sudden now I'm in a position where we can de-escalate this much faster. But that's not what we're often taught. We're often taught that if someone's aggressive to you, you've got to immediately come back at them with more aggression, especially when we're talking about, for instance, coaches and young players, right? It's, a, it's an authority issue. It's a, we need to maintain a, a posture that we are in control of a situation. And what we don't realize is that when we use that lens and not the trauma-informed lens, we're actually kind of creating a situation where it's less likely to end quickly, whatever the problem is, it is more likely to escalate and you're less likely to get the outcome that you wanted. So when I think about coaches um, and my background, I used to work at Auburn University uh, as an academic advisor with, uh, with, with some of the sports teams there. And when I think about coaches that are working with youth, a lot of our, our youth, even when they get older, their brains are not fully informed in the, at the college level and they're still struggling to kind of figure out their identity. And a lot of these folks are coming from marginalized backgrounds. And they're, they're struggling with the ways that they have been impacted by the social institutions around them or the failures and shortcomings of those institutions. They're also, you know, they're also uh, less likely to have gotten any type of education on what it means to be uh, kind of uh, well-regulated, well controlling your impulses, communicating in healthy ways. They're more likely instead to have received the type of education that focuses narrowly on did you pass tests? And so sometimes working in that type of space is not just a matter of let's help you manage your schedule, which we did a lot of at Auburn University, let's help you manage your schedule, but instead also let's think about the whole person and what else is kind of lacking in the situation so that if we can get that fixed, we know that this person is more likely to be successful both on and off the field. And, and Duncan, if I can interject, you know, you're speaking to the right audience because these individuals that are part of the summit are those athlete development specialists, those student athlete development specialists. So they're the ones that are having those conversations with the athletes that dive deeper than how are you doing in this, this math class or what should we schedule you for in the fall, but having some of those in-depth conversations. And I watched one of your trainings where you shared a scenario of a, of a bear and um, if you're interacting with the bear, your reaction. And I think if you could share that, um, the metaphor, the story that you, that you tell, I think it would be very helpful because it'll inform those individuals on this call, those athlete development specialists, perhaps a better approach knowing um, the, the state of trauma that individuals might be in knowingly, but there's also those individuals that are in this state of trauma that have no idea. Right. And I, I think that's important, the no idea part, right? Uh, and I'm so glad for your question, because one of the things I'll, I'll start with as an answer to your question is to remind everyone, which is, is so important, that our brains aren't really fully formed until around 25 years of age, okay? That means that there's a 
part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, that's responsible for our executive functioning. It's responsible for the rational decision-making parts of our lives. And to know that that part of your brain is the last one to kind of fully come together and fully form helps us realize what we're working with and what our limitations are when we're, when we're dealing with people who are, who are struggling, right? The struggling to, be, to move in the directions we want them to move. When you understand the limitations, right? You know, society was set up in a way that we decided what you do at 16 and 18 and 21, well before we had this understanding of the brain, especially the brain of the young person. Because, you know, with, with science and its innovations, now we're able to actually look at the child brain or the youth brain while they're still living. Whereas, you know, many decades ago, we could really only look at it post-mortem. So now we're doing this kind of live imaging and we're seeing things and we're understanding that, oh, is that why so many young people get in car accidents at 16 and 17? Is that why my straight A student who has never made any mistake one day decided to go on a drunken binge with his friends and somebody ended up in a really bad situation? And, and trying to help parents understand that the science is there now. We actually can see the brains and we can see what's going on that's leading to these types of problems is important. So here's the first thing I want to point out when I try to address your question. We need to break out of the old school mentality of assuming that because people have big, strong bodies, especially student athletes, right, they have the big, strong bodies, that their brains are caught up, right? We look at folks, especially folks, in, and because of racism, who come from communities of color, and we often adultify them sooner than we should, whether it be the 10-year-old that has begun puberty a little bit earlier, and we're treating her like she's 15 or 16. Well, her body her body may lead to those conclusions, but her brain is very much what you would expect at 10. And so we have to treat that accordingly. And we have to know that it's not going to fully form until you get much later, right? So even when you get to the college level is the point I was getting to. Just don't expect that folks all have it all the way together yet when it comes to their brain and the, fun and the functioning of it. This is important because when we feel unsafe, right, when we feel dysregulated, when we feel like things are becoming out of control, we rely on certain parts of our brain to help us calm down, to help us figure out and make meaning out of a situation. Whether it's uh, the bear in the classroom, and the example that, I, that you're referring to, Stephanie, is this idea that if you're in a classroom and a bear comes charging in, most of us who don't have bear training and bear experience are gonna respond in pretty predictable ways. We're gonna jump, go crazy, jump out of windows, whatever we can do, some of us will freeze. Some of us, you know, won't be able to move at all, right? But what happens at that situation will not alarm anyone, right? Because the fact that we're all scattered and, and reacting maybe poorly, right, compared to the bear expert, it's not going to surprise everyone, anyone because we're all expecting, I mean, this, this is not something that happens on an everyday basis. Here's the, the, the catch. There are some folks for whom it's like a bear coming in every day. And all of a sudden, our eyes shift to those folks because it doesn't look normal, right? In other words, you know, it was okay that you reacted this way when something strange and unpredictable happened, something crazy that you didn't have control of. But some of our young people are going to react in much different ways. And it's going to seem like, in terms of how they're responding, that this crisis all the time that they're gonna constantly be dysregulated, that they're gonna be constantly be trying to grapple with a con control over a situation that has no control, right? And so what ends up happening for those young people, they are relying more on their amygdala, which is the fear center of our brain, 
that flight or freeze part, right? They're, they're relying on that part of their brain to kind of get them through. And that often has to do with the trauma that we've experienced earlier in life. And when you think, when you connect this with social justice, I want you to really think about institutionalized trauma, right? The ways that people have been harmed, not necessarily just by the individual issues, you know, someone held you up at gunpoint, but the larger systemic issues like a criminal justice system or a healthcare system or a political system that is routinely broken or routinely targeting certain communities and certain people. That type of trauma is different because you can't escape it. And even when it doesn't necessarily seem to affect you directly, you're still affected by it because the people around you are. So you're still living in fear of what could happen to you. So what you have then is you have people in entire communities that are being raised with a type of trauma that says there's always a bear in the room. There's always a reason to fear. And I can never feel safe. I can never feel safe in my body. I can never feel safe in my skin color. I can never feel safe using my accent. I can never feel safe in lots of spaces, not just because of the individual experiences, but because of the institutional trauma or the institutionalized trauma that comes from systemic racism, excuse me, systemic classism, right? Systemic issues. So in this, in this country, in the US, there are, there are systems that are set up by in large part to benefit certain groups of people over others, right? And we have to recognize what the impact is on those who are outside of that system. I was working um, just recently in a professional development workshop with a teacher who was struggling with her students of color of Asian descent, who in her opinion, were really struggling to fit in, not necessarily because they, they lacked esteem or self-esteem, but because every time they tried to introduce aspects of their culture into the school, the students routinely mocked them. Why does your food smell like that? Um, what, is, what is this thing you're wearing? Um, why does your name sound funny, right? And trying to figure out how to help those students is really not just the issue of an individual experience. That is an example of kind of the, the way systems are set up so that this is abnormal because we have made one group of people, we have made one standard of behavior the acceptable standard, the benchmark for everyone else. So when you in this school, this young person or these young people deviate from that, they're going to have experiences that could potentially injure them in different ways. There are many I ways I could explain the bear scenario. Yes. Well, that was, and I, was, I appreciate you kind of walking through that. I think that's a great, uh, a great way to kind of position it. And I think one of the things that, you know, we had the opportunity to read was a, was an academic article and it kind of talked to the challenges of, so of, of folks that are living in outside of these norms, as you refer to them, and the and the diminished mental health that's associated with that, and how that plays out over the long run, you know, almost generation over generation. You know, growing up in Canada, um, you know, our First Nations people have been, you know, uh, you know, subject to all kinds of uh, ridiculous. Uh, injustices from um, you know residential schools all the way down the line. So I think what I was going to ask you is 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 how from an athlete development perspective, when you have an athlete that's presented to you and you know that they're coming from a historically um, uh, repressed community that's sort of outside of those acceptable norms. How what is the best way to begin the process of relating with them so that you know you can kind of begin to you're never going to remove the bear from the room, but perhaps you can begin the, a conversation that makes managing it a little bit more uh, plausible. 
Well, there, there. That's a great question. There are a lot of ways. Um, one, one way, and this is unconventional, but I think it's an important one to throw out there, is to affirm other aspects of their identity, right? When, when, when you're a young or a low-income black boy growing up in America, and you're good at sports, and this is just an example, you know, you're, you're often denied systems of support around anything other than sports. Um, and sometimes, for instance, you'll be passed through academically, and people will think they're doing you a favor. Right, because they want to make sure that you get to pursue your sport instead of taking a more trauma-informed approach that says, in order to help them not only succeed at the sport, but in every aspect of life, we're going to address all the issues, all the aspects of your identity that, that arise and that emerge. And so one kind of very practical tip is if you're in a situation where you can build resources around children who have been stigmatized to believe that the only thing they have to offer is the sport that they play, then take advantage of the opportunity to help them think about and affirm other aspects of their, their own identity. So, so the first step, of course, is to affirm it yourself, to find different ways to help that person see that you see them as more than just an athlete, right? Athletes are beautiful, but to see that, that you see them as more than just an athlete. And then give them opportunities to develop that within themselves, right? That own kind of competence and confident and confidence around who I am. Because what's going to happen is that doesn't mean they're going to stop excelling at their sport. It's going to take the pressure away so that while they still want to excel and be the best and keep their scholarship. So not only are they going to uh, try to excel at their sport, but they're also going to feel like they have strong identity in other parts of themselves, which will kind of sometimes alleviate some of the things that get in the way, the roadblocks that keep us from excelling at sport because we're so determined that it's the only thing we have. Right. You, you know, this it's, it sounds counterintuitive. Right. But we all relate to this. If you think that the only thing you have going for you and your professional role right now is exactly what you're doing, you may end up applying so much pressure to yourself that you actually do the job poorly. You actually don't do well at it. Right. It's important to give to affirm multiple aspects of the identity, knowing that that has often historically been denied to athletes of color throughout their time growing up. Uh, and out of curiosity, when you, yeah. I was just going to ask you, out of curiosity, is, is, is this something that, you know, if you're an athlete development specialist or if you're a coach, from your perspective, is this something that's done individually or is this something that's also done public, publicly to affirm this individual's identity in all aspects of their identity within this, within this group, you know, the, the group no, environment? I, I, I think it's... Yeah, Duncan, that's a great question. I, th I think it goes both ways. I think you need both. The other, the other thing, you know, this this will help you answer answer that question, but 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 it'll stray a little bit from it. What I will say is, oftentimes we take with our athletes an authoritarian approach, right? The authoritarian approach is kind of that uh, coach or parent that's saying, "Do as I say, not as I," you know, just I mean, do as do what I say, no conversation needed. And I recognize that that's. The, to a certain extent, that's always going to be needed, especially in the sports world. But we have to allow space, whether it's, you know, the head coach of one team versus the assistant coach of the offense, right? We need to allow space to uh, allow our, our young people who are still kind of fragile in their identities to express themselves. So I'm not necessarily telling every coach that, you're, that, the, that the kid in practice right now who needs to run his 12 suicides needs to express himself at that particular moment. But what I do mean is that we need to begin to create space in our programs that allow them to do that. 
right? So it doesn't have to be this moment or this minute because right now you have a plan and if this person's deviating from it, maybe you, you stick to it, right? But there's gotta be an opportunity to give that space back. And the reason why is because that, that authoritarian approach, while you know it can be good if you use it in, in kind of quick batches in the, in the athletic world at least, over time, it's actually going to be counterproductive to you getting what you need out of that athlete. And it's going to be because it is counterproductive to their healthy development, right? Everybody needs some agency in life. And the reason why this is particularly important when we're thinking about systemic injustice is because that has been, for the, to a large extent, routinely stripped away from young athletes throughout the course of their lives. They're constantly being told from, especially the most successful athletes, from the ones who started six and seven and eight, they are constantly being told from very early years in their life what to do by everyone around them. Now it's true that some athletes who come to great success, you know, maybe they emerge later, later in middle school or high school. But think about the athlete that from seven, eight year old, eight years old has always had someone dictating to them this is what you do. This is when you do it. This is how you do it. We've got to give athletes the space to speak at some point or else we are going to crush aspects of their identity that aren't just going to be, uh, you know, important for their other aspects of their lives, but also for their, their success in their sport. Because eventually everybody rebels when, they, when you realize you've had no choice over any aspect of your lives. And we have to remember the coaches don't have control over this. But a lot of these athletes are also coming from homes where parents have been kind of reinforcing those messages. They've been yelling at them from the sidelines of their childhood from day one. Do this, do that. The coach, the coach, if you, you know, if you've ever been at the sideline of some of these games now, the coaches are usually more merciful than the parents. Right? It's okay. It's okay that your 12-year-old stumbled. It's all right. We're 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 gonna be okay. But the, the, the parents are climbing over the fences to, to to you know to scold the child right then and right there. And so if you recognize the pressure that these young athletes are under, then you will begin to recognize the need to give them some space to create those spaces where they can actually express themselves. You know, I think what you've, you've shared really um, hits home for those in athlete development because the cornerstone of the work they're doing is really about building relationships and authentic relationships. So when you're, you know, uh, sharing with us, to highlight the other aspects of the individual that helps foster that relationship where you're celebrating the entire individual, not just their athletic abilities. Um, so I think that definitely is in line, you know, with the philosophies that we hope all these individuals in this space are operating under. One thing, you know, as we continue down this journey of, of social injustice and, and focusing on social justice is what are some tips that you might give someone who's working in this space that might not be of the same racial background as the athletes that they're working with. So they might feel they don't have that connectivity or they don't come from the, the background to have a fruitful, meaningful conversation on the topic of race, especially in 2021, given the last two years. These are, these are important questions and they're difficult because I, I respect and I understand why some people would, would hesitate to enter into these conversations. Uh, they are not easy and you are capable of making mistakes. I, you know, I, I give talks like this every day, uh, well, not every day, but very often. And I recognize that even I am capable of making mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. So I could be doing, I could be in this kind of field for another decade and find that after class one day at Penn State, a student tells me that they are offended 
right? That that there is something that I didn't do. Uh, maybe I mis maybe I misgendered them by accident, right? I, I don't know. But the point is, is that I, I recognize that there's going to be a certain level of humility that's required for anyone to engage with this work. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where it's really hard to accept or acknowledge your mistakes because you may be uh, pilloried for it, right? There are not a lot of people who are accepting of, I'm sorry, these days. <clears throat> Fortunate for me is I work in an educational environment where we, <laughs> where learning is a value, right? And we recognize that people are always, people are on a journey. And, you know, some are, some are farther along, some will get there eventually. And sometimes we actually go back and forth. We regress on our own journeys, right? And so what I would say is, one, I want to validate the concerns that people have, because I know oftentimes it's not. We say, hey, you know, get in the game. And if you're not in that game, then we're just going to automatically jump on you and tell you you're a bad person. I don't think we should automatically assume that people are bad because they're afraid to engage in it. But I think what people who are afraid to engage with these issues are missing is that this isn't just a topic. This is the topic. Right. The reason why we're connecting issues of social injustice to trauma today is so that we can begin to understand the influence of it on the lives of the youth, youth we hope to serve. Right. A lot of times we, neg we, we negate the value of, of engaging. Right. And we, we think about the risk instead. But if you begin to understand the, tra the trauma that's associated with being a part of a marginalized community, you'll begin to realize that it's not a matter of if you must, you simply must be in this game, right? Because to be marginalized, what that essentially means, if you come from a marginalized background or community, it means that your agency has been routinely stripped from you, right? Your needs, your voices, all silenced for the benefit of someone else. When you combine that with the sports world, where you are often silenced as an individual in pursuit of a, of a larger goal as a team, then you realize that these folks in particular are going to struggle more with some of the issues than others. And so here's what I would recommend. Prioritize the trauma that we know people are experiencing over your fears of engaging because you may make a mistake. And when you do make a mistake, apologize. Own it, acknowledge it, use it as an opportunity to grow and move forward. It's much better, by the way, if we spend time just getting to know young people, getting to know the athletes in front of us, asking questions and not making assumptions, right? There is no monolithic black experience, for instance, no mono, certainly no monolithic Latino experience with the diversity and breadth with that, within that community. And so asking people about their unique lens of the world, their unique experiences is valuable and useful to getting to know people as individuals. So ask questions, have conversation, develop the relationships that you want to develop. But you also have to recognize that at, even at 19, 20 years of age, while some young people are definitely becoming better at articulating and communicating what's inside of them, others are still going to struggle. So we also necess can't necessarily assume that because people have the bodies of you know, uh, uh, really, really strong people that, that intellectually and mentally and emotionally, they have really fully come to terms with their experience throughout their lives. That's a journey that people are often still taking well into their 20s, but certainly into their mid 20s. I was gonna ask you, when you, when you look at the, the, the work that you've done within the teaching community, and I'm curious is, is if you can talk to some of the success that you've had 
in reframing the, the attitudes of, of educators and what impact that's actually had on the students that they've worked with. Because I think one of the things that I found interesting uh, is that, you know, you talk about that issue that, that Stephanie just mentioned, you know, actually being willing to engage in the conversation, even if you feel you don't like have a right to, so eight out of 10 teachers in the United States are white. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the stats was in one of the, uh, the research documents that we had kind of gone over. So I'm just curious, from your perspective, yeah. you know, the work that you've done, how has that impacted these classrooms and, and how has it impacted the folks that are actually doing the teaching? Yeah, well, I tell you what, one of the lines that I usually have uh, that we usually get to at some point in my training is don't save them teach them that they don't need to be saved, which is essentially saying how trauma-informed and social justice come together. I think one of the fundamental lessons that I try to get to when we're teaching is sometimes whether it's, and I think coaches kind of bring this too, but you know, a lot of folks don't come to the coaching profession or the teaching profession because of the salary. Yeah, yeah, you know, depending on where you are and at what level you are, yes, it's possible for you to make a good amount of money, but most of us come because of our passion for youth our passion for making a difference, our passion for helping somebody grow, whether it be athletically or academically. And so, you know, the good news is that passion is incredibly, you know, inspiring. But the bad news, for some at least, is that that passion can also lend itself toward the temptation to save, right? And and to save someone is the opposite of being trauma-informed. To save someone is to essentially condescend to them, to say that there's something about rescuing. Right. And what I try to do with the teachers when I try to help them see things both from a social justice lens and a trauma informed lens, and we do this through different exercises and workshops and right, is help them think about their own implicit bias, the ways that they make assumptions about the people that they are really trying to serve. Right. And then help them kind of reframe, well, what if? What if it's something different? What if it's something entirely different that you didn't? that you didn't recognize, what is the harm in the assumption you just made, right? And what, what if, if there's anything that I think, and there's a lot that we cover in these types of sessions, but if there's anything that is, that is the most powerful that I can target, it's when a well-intentioned, wonderful veteran teacher or culture, right? Someone who is really invested takes another long look and says, you know what? I was actually stripping people of their power at the same time I thought I was giving it to them. Because by trying to solve their problems or be the solution to perceived problems, by trying to be a hero that swoops in, it, all these forms of helping that, you know, these helping forms, all of those things, I was actually wounding them. But social justice says, I'm going to give them the education and the background and the opportunity to see themselves as something other than victims, to see themselves as something other than recipients of charity, right? I'm actually going to prepare you to believe that you are more than just someone who needs saving. In fact, if I can inform you and educate you and inspire you, then maybe you can go out and save other people, quote unquote, even though that's not the goal. The goal is for the young people to realize their intrinsic value. We often send messages to young people, whether it be through belittling their cultural norms or their hairstyles or you know whatever they are into in their, at, at the time, we often send the message that the products that they produce are inferior, that there's something wrong about their generational norms, right? When I'm working with teachers and I'm helping them understand 
it's really not necessary to belittle them. In fact, it's really important not to, that, that even the, the, the harmless jokes are harmful, right? That once we begin to see where they come from, that they're deeply rooted in prejudice, right? Then we often begin to change because all of a sudden it becomes about our implicit bias and not about the person in front of us. And, then, and I think what's really interesting just what you just said is that obviously the key word here sounds like it's empowerment. We're trying to empower these young people to be who they can be. And I think one of the interesting things too is what would you say to a major professional athlete um, of color from a, you know, one of these, uh, from, from a culture that's, uh, that's been typically marginalized, what would you communicate to that athlete that maybe has the platform to, to speak to young people what would you be wanting them to understand? What would you want to wanting them to communicate? How could they even further amplify their meth, their message uh, or amplify a message that kind of supports the work that you're doing? You know, I was thinking about your question and I was thinking that when I was uh, growing up, you know, uh, the Cosby show generation, and when you had, you had a lot of folks who believed that it was the responsibility of a small group of people, black people who made it uh, the so-called talented 10th, right, as the boys would put it. It was their responsibility to go back and mentor the ghetto. And I say, and I use that pejoratively. I use that on purpose, right? It's a job of these well-educated middle-class or higher uh, black and brown people to go back and mentor others so that they can be inspired by our, 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 our perceived greatness, right? And, and I say it in a way that I hope sounds condescending because I think that that is the message that I would give, that we need to resist that temptation. Right. Oftentimes, and I'll go back to your other question to answer this one. Oftentimes, teachers will say, here's what I've learned in my previous trauma-informed trainings. I've learned how to respond to students who are defensive or whose, uh, who, whose behavior was inappropriate. And oftentimes, what I'll do with that teacher is I'll unpack it and I'll say, well, how did we get to define that as defensive? Or how did we get to define that as inappropriate? In other words, what cultural lens were you using when you decided that that is what that was? Because a trauma-informed lens might say that that is exactly not what it was. I don't know, right? But, but you've got to dig deeper. It's entirely possible, for instance, that if I grew up in a community where there's a lot of violence, then the ways that I handle you when you're aggressive with me is actually very appropriate. It's not inappropriate. It's very appropriate. It's very much aligned with what I know in order to survive. But when a teacher comes and reads it from their cultural lens as something different than what it was, then now we have problems, this kind of cultural disconnect. I often think that the problem that we have when we send uh, these, these uh, speakers, these, these former folks from, from similar backgrounds but have now made it somewhere else, and we send them back, that the tone is, we want you to tell them on the basis of your experience who to be and how to act. And I think that's the wrong message. It is not their job to go and quote unquote, get up, mentor the ghetto. No, it is your job to inspire and to share your narrative so that other people have the faith in themselves to share their own, right? That's what we want. We want to, and you use the word empower, it's, it's empowerment, it's agency. It's saying you can have your voice. You are not voiceless here. So as opposed to me telling you, based on my very narrow and specific experience of how Miranda Harrell Levy navigated whatever you know, traumas that I had to get to where I am today, it's about saying, hey, you know what? You get to own your story too. You get to own your interpretation of your own reality. You get to own everything and 
that is giving people their power back and then letting them decide the best way to live their lives as opposed to do it my way. I got to tell you, I, I've worked in, I've done some trainings at a lot of agencies like WIC, uh, uh, Women's Infant Children. And, I've, and, and that is often the main problem. It's this idea that we tell people how to do it based on our own experience. And then when they don't, we punish them for it. We make them feel inadequate for it. Well, you didn't do it the way I told you to. You didn't respond the way I would have. Don't you understand that I was in this difficult situation and I got out of it, right? I, 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 we center ourselves and center all of our privilege and conversations with young people. And then we think that we're being kind of social justice advocates when really that is the opposite of social justice, especially trauma-informed social justice. So you, you bring up a great point about individuals speaking from the I perspective. This is how I handled that. This is how I did it. Um, in 2021, the topic of social justice is one that sp the sports world has definitely brought to the surface. But how do you address from the sports perspective, those individuals that aren't saying I, 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 but quite the opposite, those that don't understand the depth of the topic. They don't understand the, the depth of the pain. They don't understand the systemic issues. And I'm speaking specifically in the yeah. sports realm because now that sports has brought it to the surface from the athletes and a lot of the um, coaches have been supporters, some owners have been supporters, but there's still a lot of individuals in that sports world that don't understand. So what, what do you say to those individuals um, so they understand. This is fantastic again. And I got to tell you, one of the reasons, and there, I'm, sh I'm sure there are many, but one of the reasons why some folks do struggle to understand to begin with is because part of the, the systemic racism in this country has been that Black people have not been entitled to all of their feelings and emotions. In other words, they have not been entitled to all aspects of their humanity. You hear terms like the strong black woman syndrome, for instance, or the myth of the unemotional black man, right? This idea that people have had to limit their emotional responses in order to survive, right? So what, ha what happens then? You have generations of people who, didn't, who never even owned their trauma, let alone discussed it publicly. Right, generations of people who weren't able or willing or sanctioned to go out and actually say, you know what, this is trauma. In fact, it was only within the last 15 years that we even began to recognize racial trauma as an issue. Before then, the only forms of trauma we were really looking at were, for instance, post-war vet trauma or trauma that we understood well in predominantly white communities. But now all of a sudden we're starting to think about what is it like living in a community um, where you feel that you're in a constant police state. What is it like living in a, in a majority white community and you're the only Latino child, uh, right? What are, how can these also act or operate as forms of trauma? And so now that we are broadening our understanding, a lot of people are kind of, what's happening? They're, they're looking around like, I don't understand. This must be a new issue because I grew up around black kids. I grew up around Latinx kids and no, and no one had these problems growing up, right? That, that's kind of a, a mentality. And I don't understand why all of a sudden now these are all of a sudden challenging issues. And what I want to help them understand is that these were always challenging issues. But, but for so many years in this country, we weren't, as, as people of color, allowed to express it, own it, right? 
you know, you weren't allowed to cry. You weren't allowed to go to therapy. You weren't allowed to admit it hurt you, right? You were, you, you know, I was talking to a, a friend of a, uh, maybe a, uh, around the time of Cinco de Mayo, and I was trying to figure out something about the holiday and whether or not it was a holiday that he celebrated. And what he explained to me, because I, and I, I should get some background, because I remember him celebrating it in college. And what he explained to me um, is that, yes, he celebrated in college. Yes, he even did all of the, and this, this is a friend of Mexican descent. Yes, he did all the stereotypical things he was expected to do. He drank the Coronas, right? He did, he did all the things that he thought he had to do to fit in with the people around him. So of course he understands that, you know, 15, 20 years later, people will look at it as odd that he is one of the main people who says, you know, don't say single de Mayo to me, or don't, don't celebrate it, don't even acknowledge it, because we, we remember him at the parties, engaging and having fun. But what he will explain to you now, as he explained it to me, is a, a similar in phenomenon to what I'm trying to explain to you, which is he was doing that because in America, there is so much pressure to fit in if you're from a marginalized group, that you often do so at great kind of, at great harm to self. He said he struggled for years after with the implications of the way that he felt his identity was being mocked, his culture was being mocked, right? But at the time, he didn't feel safe enough to express that even with other people of, of, of from marginalized backgrounds. Instead, it was just much easier to engage. In fact, if you, if, if you asked him what I did, he would have told you that he didn't even feel comfortable acknowledging even within himself what the mockery was doing to him at the time. So this is a college age student, right? 19, 20 years old. And he is engaged in what he now perceives as kind of self-harming, mocking, minimizing, self-limiting behaviors because of this, this need to fit in. So I want to explain that as the first part of my answer to your question. When people are struggling with, well, where is this all of a sudden coming from? It's not all of a sudden, right? This has been an issue, but there has never been a safe space the way it's becoming safe now to discuss it. That's, that's first. I can think as an uh, as a, as a athlete myself, um, all of the experiences I've had in sports teams, most of which, by the way, were incredibly positive and incredibly helpful to my own personal journey, but some of which that were deeply embarrassing and hurtful, um, ways that I were teased or isolated or not, uh, not invited to parties or activities on the basis of race, right? All those things were adding up. All of them were taken in effect. But if you had asked me, even at 18, 19, 20 years old, I don't think I could have described it to you the way I could now. So that's, that's the first part. So the second part then, if, if you are, if you are, if you're willing to understand why this conversation may seem new to you, and now you can also see why it is not necessarily a new issue, then it's just a matter of accepting that you have a responsibility, especially if you have any privilege in this country, right? We all come from different backgrounds. Some of us are going to be more privileged, some of us more oppressed, but the reality is our identities are more intersectional in nature. It's not, it's never just all of one thing or all of another, right? I, for instance, identify as a, as a middle-class, college-educated, uh, heterosexual, uh, abled Black woman. In that, and those identities, some are going to position me with some privilege, and some of them are going to position me without some privilege, if privilege, if that makes sense. So, you know, once you accept that and you recognize that, then the only choice you have is to is to learn and to engage, right? That that's the real answer to your question. 
Google is a beautiful resource, right? Like Yahoo, like we have, we have so many books we could read. We have so many websites we could peruse, so many articles we can share. But first we have to be open to just learning and improving. And I think really, Stephanie, the problem comes that m- many of us just aren't willing because we think that all of this is kind of strange and concocted. So get past the whole it's strange and concocted part, recognize the validity of it, and then go educate yourself so you can learn more. And I think that's maybe an interesting place to sort of begin to wrap it up because I think the the really, I guess, hopeful message that I'm taking away from this is that really there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed. We're not going to solve them all on this podcast and it's going to take time to address them, but it all seems like if we're willing to start with a conversation and to be willing to be vulnerable to a certain extent, to have those conversations, to take those risks. And like you say, if you're coming from a, a place of privilege, being willing to apologize, if you kind of step out of line with how you approach it, I think that seems to be the best mindset in terms of how you can approach it. I don't know if you agree with that, but I'd, I'd kind of like to hear your two cents on it. Because again, these are generational issues that have been going on for a long time. It's going to take generations probably to solve it. Hopefully it doesn't, but it probably will. Absolutely. I think we all, for better or worse, rely on the benefit of personal experience. And if your personal experience was limited, narrow, you're going to struggle more now, right? Um, and, and we all have limited personal experience, by the way, especially depending on what the topic is. And so do we fundamentally as Americans decide, and this is where social justice education comes into me, that we want to be people who learn, people who grow, people who evolve, or do we decide that on the basis of very limited experience, we're gonna live our entire lives and never grapple with any truths or experiences beyond that? Um, th- that's really kind of the fundamental question. Are we are we people who are lifelong learners or are we just kind of very settled, very complacent and saying, you know what, what I know is what I know. That's it. All I've got is my own, you know, my circle of friends and my my experiences and the people on, on social media who agree with me. Um, and that's it. That's all I need. Or are we willing to step out and recognize the beauty of the very broad and diverse world of which we are a part? decide to engage with it and learn more about how we could have, how we could improve the world around us, how we could have contributed even accidentally to it not being the best possible world. You know, how willing are we, and this is why social justice education is so important in schools, to even just grapple with the basic questions. We need to teach our young people how to define justice, even if they're only defining it for themselves. We need to teach them what is, you know, to, to develop a moral code because their moral code, Duncan, Duncan's moral code does not have to be the same as Stephanie's, but at some point they need to know what their moral code is, right? We need to allow them to engage critically with topics and issues. It's amazing to me that we have so many schools in quote unquote, quote unquote ghettos in America, but very, very few of those schools is the word ghetto ever even defined? Is the history of ghettos ever even taught? It is, it is fascinating and heartbreaking that we are putting people in situations where we are reinforcing their powerlessness because not only do they have all these societal impediments, all these structural limitations, but they are being taught that those problems are solely their fault, that they are, they are responsible for every bad thing that happened because no one is investing in education that at least lets them know, well, there are these other things happening in the world that are contributing to the problems we see in society today. 
And, 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 and if you just teach it, you give them just a little bit of power back. You give them a little bit of agency back because then it becomes less of a matter of, I have no control. I can never improve. I'm stuck in a generational loop and I can never get out of it. And instead it becomes, I see and understand. And maybe if I do this or do that, I can somehow create potential and agency where before I didn't see it, right? That's important because there are a lot of folks, and I, I think, by the way, regardless of your political affiliation, I think a lot of people can buy into this. There are a lot of folks who are concerned about people being dependent upon programs or assistance in this country, but I don't think they recognize that if we don't teach people, then they will continue to be powerless, that we actually take people's power away when we don't teach the true history of our country, when we don't teach the true nature of the problems that people are facing. This is not to teach people that they are victims. This is not to teach people that they are oppressors. This is instead to teach people the nuances and complexities of our lives and to give them an opportunity to engage with it and make decisions about how it affects them personally. You do that. And some of the problems that people perceive are intractable in this country will begin to go away, not because it's a magic solution, but because we've empowered the people, the people who are most impacted by those issues to actually go out and do something about them. Instead of the powerlessness that so many members of marginalized communities face today. I think we'll wrap it there. That was phenomenal. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn, for participating. And of course, many thanks to Dr. Marinda Harrell-Levy. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Uh, this was awesome. And, and can't say thanks enough for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us. I appreciate the opportunity. And I wish you all the best for your conference. And I look forward to meeting with you again one day. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly, we greatly appreciate your support of PADS. We'd also like to acknowledge the support of our global partners for their ongoing support of all of our initiatives, including the Athlete Development Podcast Series. Again, be sure to be on the lookout for information regarding live Q&A sessions, and we urge you to continue to dive deep into all of the different podcasts that we're bringing to you over the coming weeks. Again, thanks for your interest and for your support of PADS.